This is the mop-up. And I felt horrible this morning. I woke up with a sore throat, lethargic. I, my eyes were watery. I thought I was dying. And then, great news. Absolutely fantastic news. I'm not dying. It turns out the planet is dying. Isn't that great news? That was great news for me. New York City has some of the worst air pollution in the world, thanks to those Canadian wildfires. And the smoke is drifting southwards. So wildfires from the west coast of Canada spreading east all the way to Quebec. It's drifting down into America, and that's prompted the Environmental Protection Agency to issue air quality alerts for New England, New York, New Jersey, as well as other parts of America I couldn't care less about. You could see the impacts Wednesday in the hazy skylines of New York and Boston as a high-pressure system sent the Canadian smoke south and west, prompting environmental officials stateside to issue air quality alerts in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. I was so worried that there was something wrong with me. It's great. I thought I was sick, and it has nothing to do with me. It's the consumption of fossil fuels that's causing the planet to heat up, and that, of course, intensifies hurricanes, tornadoes, and, of course, Canadian wildfires. So I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. It's just the smoke. I'm not dying. Yeah, the Arctic Circle will have no summer ice in 10 years. That's according to a new report today. But I am so happy. I'm not sick. The planet is. More good news. You know, I've been feeling like a loser lately. Listeners to my podcast know I did a pledge episode on Monday asking for donations. And while many of you were very generous, uh, thank you for that. I still feel like a loser who never measured up. I was supposed to be the culmination of my grandparents' voyage to Ellis Island and then into America. I was supposed to get my slice of the pie, but I ended up being nothing. I'm nothing. But then I read in the Wall Street Journal today that commercial real estate in Manhattan is about to go belly up. Isn't that great news? All the major corporations in America say they're cutting down on office space because everybody wants to work at home. And this is really bad news for commercial landlords. In the next three years, $1.5 trillion in commercial real estate loans are going to come due. And the landlords can't pay it because the thing about commercial real estate loans is you never pay off the principal. You just have to pay the interest with the idea being that the value of the real estate that you own increases. So you sell it to pay off the loan when the loan comes due and then you keep the profit. That's how you keep flipping real estate. But now commercial real estate, especially here in Manhattan, where I've been feeling really poor and like a loser, commercial real estate is empty, which means all the landlords downtown are underwater. They owe more than they're worth. Isn't that great? They owe the banks more than their buildings are worth. And unlike Donald Trump or Jared Kushner, these poor landlords, they can't make deals with Saudi Arabia from the Oval Office to, you know, to get their loans paid off. The commercial real estate bubble is about to pop. And I'll still be a loser, but I'll have company. 
speaking of Saudi Arabia, LIV Golf. Is that I don't I think it's called LIV Golf. I hope it's not like Roman numerals that I'm missing, but I'm going to call it LIV Golf because I've only read about it. Now, LIV Golf has been growing and grabbing some of the top golfers from the PGA for its tournaments. And LIV Golf is uh, very unpopular in certain parts of America because Donald Trump supports it. And it's owned and operated by Saudi Arabia's sovereign fund. Uh, So a lot of people have a problem with anything that Saudi Arabia funds because they funded some stuff that isn't too popular here in America, like the attacks on 9-11. Yeah, that was uh, the Saudi princes who funded 9-11. And, you know, Saudi Arabia drops bombs. We sold them. They dropped our bombs that we sold them onto innocent civilians in Yemen. They murdered journalists. They oppress women and members of the LGBTQ community. I mean, let's face it, when it comes to human rights abuses, Saudi Arabia is right up there with Syria and possibly even Florida. But LIV Golf wanted to compete with the PGA. And so Saudi Arabia took the PGA to court, claiming the PGA was a monopoly. Who does the PGA think it is? OPEC? And then the PGA took LIV golf to court and with both parties claiming the other was a monopoly. The fighting got more and more intense. But luckily, cooler heads finally prevailed on Tuesday and the PGA and LIV golf came to an agreement. It's kind of nice. Now, the PGA says LIV golf is a monopoly and LIV golf says the PGA is a monopoly. In America, how do you deal with a monopoly? You merge and create an even bigger monopoly. In a surprise announcement, they announced on Tuesday that they're merging because bigger is better. Speaking of bigger being better, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie declared that he is officially a candidate for the Republican Party's presidential nomination. Christie says he will not vote for Trump, even if Trump is the nominee. And that's basically what Christie said when he ran back in 2016. But then he ended up becoming one of Trump's closest political advisors. I'd say he was Trump's lapdog, but uh, nah, I don't think that would be too painful. Now, a lot of people who hate Trump think Christie's the guy because he's tough and he can bring the fight to Trump because Chris Christie's a tough talking, take no prisoners brawler. That's what they call him. They say he's a brawler. There are now 10 candidates vying for the Republican nomination, which is reminiscent of 2016, where a crowded field created two camps. You had Donald Trump in one camp and everybody else in the other camp. One of the reasons Trump got the nomination in 2016 is that there were so there were just too many uh, moderate establishment candidates and they were splitting the vote. You know, I'm not explaining it properly. Here is Fox News's John Roberts on Tuesday comparing the Republican Party. 
Here he is comparing the Republican Party to a milkshake. It's like you have two milkshakes, right? The Republican Party is two milkshakes. And, and, and this one, representing almost half the party, because that's what the polling shows, mm-hmm. has got one straw in it, and that's Donald Trump's straw, right? And the other milkshake, which represents the non-Donald Trump part of the Republican Party, has how many straws in it now? And now we're going to have Chris Christie's straw right. there. And judging by Chris Christie's physical stature, he could drink a lot of that milkshake if he wanted to. But you're not affecting the Donald Trump milkshake. You're just affecting the other part of it. I think it'll have little net effect in the race. That's a much better explanation of the vote uh, getting split among 10 candidates. So John Roberts says that uh, there are two milkshakes and that Donald Trump gets to drink all of his milkshake. But the other candidates all have to share their milkshake And because Chris Christie is a big guy, I think John Roberts says he has uh, enormous stature. Uh, He's going to suck harder on the straw than the other candidates, which means, I guess, John Roberts is saying that because Chris Christie is a big guy, he's going to suck in most of the milkshake. And I guess Roberts is saying the Republican nomination comes down to Donald Trump and Chris Christie because both men like milkshakes. I, I think that's what John Roberts, uh, that analogy doesn't work, does it? No, I think John Roberts should apologize for that analogy. Yes, thank you, Julian. Great. Thanks, Doc, appreciate it. Uh, hey, before we go on, I, I just want to take a moment to address something because I really do feel terrible about it. Er, earlier on the show, I was making an analogy to describe the Republican voter pool, and I made a comment that I meant to be lighthearted, but immediately realized was hurtful toward Governor Chris Christie. I should not have said what I said. I deeply regret it, and I sincerely apologize to the governor. I don't understand why he's apologizing. You said that... Chris Christie is a man of stature and that he's going to suck hard on the straw uh, for the milkshake. Why do you have to apologize to Chris Christie? Is there something I'm missing? What does Chris Christie look like? There's a oh, I see. There's the I see. So he said, oh, okay, my mistake. I I didn't pay attention to the way Chris. I read. I don't watch television. That's what Chris Christie looks like. So, um Okay, so I guess saying that Chris Christie is going to suck hard on a milkshake is insulting to Chris Christie. He's big, you know, and uh, he launched his 2024 bid uh, on uh, Tuesday. He literally said, choose big over small. That's what Chris Christie said in his speech. And he, he said that Donald Trump is a mirror hog. Those are the words Chris Christie called Donald Trump a hog. Now, uh, I see what's going on here. Chris Christie is more than just a man of stature. He uh, he's a big man. He's uh, well, he's morbidly obese. I I see what's going on here. I, I don't pay attention to people's weight, but I'm seeing now that Chris Christie is uh, a big guy. And I find this uh, confusing. Uh, Hang on for one second. Just go in a little. Just what is that? What what the hell is that? Okay, (coughs) I'm sorry. I threw up a little. 
in my mouth. But uh, anyway, so let me get this straight. Oh, boy, that was rough. Uh, Okay, all of a sudden, John Roberts from Fox News is embarrassed for fat shaming Chris Christie. The man is morbidly obese and he's a Republican. All of a sudden, Fox News is PC and woke. All of a sudden, you cannot body shame Chris Christie. The network, Fox News, that has spent the past year body shaming the transgender community. The network that was built on shaming people of color, people who were born black or brown, who were born gay or born a woman. You can shame all their bodies. They were born that way. You can shame them. But you can't you can't shame Chris Christie for being morbidly obese. You you mentioned that Chris Christie, a, a bully, a brawler. You mentioned that he's morbidly obese. And all of a sudden you have to apologize on Fox News for attacking a marginalized community. Isn't that interesting that that. That fat people, according to Fox News, are a marginalized community. I didn't know Fox News believed in such a thing as marginalized communities. Well, here's the rule over at the David Feldman show. You shouldn't make fun of the morbidly obese. You shouldn't. It's a condition caused by environment the way you were raised, it's by it's biology, the same way being born gay or a transgender child is biology and you accept people no matter what. But the rule on the David Feldman show is we don't accept Republicans when they play the marginalized community card. Here's the rule on the David Feldman show when it comes to Republican politics This is the party that is banning the teaching of critical race theory. This is the party that bans drag shows, medical treatment for transgender minors. This is the party that says black people have not had it harder than white people. This is the party that Chris Christie belongs to. This is the party that preaches personal responsibility. This is the party that says there's no such thing as a hate crime, that people need to suck it up to stop playing the victim card, that there is no such thing as a protected class of people. The Republicans we saw in the debt ceiling negotiations, they believe poor people are poor because they're lazy. The Republicans don't recognize such a thing as food deserts. The Republicans, every five years when it's time to come up with our farm bill, they mock vegans. They defend factory farmers. They defend fast food restaurants. They defend junk food and sodas. And they specifically say, do not tax sugar because we're not a nanny state. This is the Republican Party that's all about personal responsibility. People are fat because why? Well, according to the Republicans, because they can't control their appetite, not because they're stressed out or they were born a certain way or because they have limited food choices or because they live in neighborhoods that only sell junk food where there's no fresh fruit or vegetables. 
This is Chris Christie's party, the party that says people have to work if they're able bodied. They have to work for six dollars a day worth of food stamps. This is the Republican Party where cruelty, mockery is the point. Chris Christie is a member of the Republican Party where the PC police and the woke have no place where they are being sent to the dust heap of history. This is the Republican Party that celebrates bullies. They claim bullies make you stronger. Chris Christie's calling card in the 2024 presidential election is that he's a bully. He's a brawler. He's a tough talker with thick skin. But all of a sudden, nobody can mention Chris Christie's weight. You have to apologize to Chris Christie for mentioning that he's morbidly obese. The same politician who cuts food stamps and we're not allowed to ask Chris Christie if he himself could live on six dollars a day worth of food stamps. The answer is no. The same man, Chris Christie, who is governor of New Jersey, constantly talked about how the government has to tighten its belt, but he hasn't seen his dick in more than 40 years. We're not allowed to mention this Republican's weight because we're fat shaming. It's not fat shaming. You don't get to be morbidly obese and a Republican. I'm sorry, Chris Christie's weight is very much germane to his candidacy, and that's not fat shaming. Half this country is obese. Half this country qualifies for these new weight loss drugs because we have an obesity problem in this country. And Americans are obese because of government policy, specifically Republican policy where you pay people starvation wages. So when they see food, they load up on it. We subsidize corn, which makes people fat. We allow fast food restaurants to, to sprout up in poor communities. Dairy and beef, which is not just killing the planet, but killing us. Dairy and beef subsidized by our government, our red state government even though it makes Americans morbidly obese. We allow lotteries and casinos to spread with politicians like Chris Christie saying gambling isn't a problem. People need to be able to control themselves. So, yes, Chris Christie has a weight problem, as does half this country. And we have an epidemic of diabetes caused by this weight problem. Does Chris Christie believe in free insulin? Is he pre-diabetic? Chris Christie is morbidly obese. And you don't get to be a Republican if you're morbidly obese. The same way you don't get to be a Republican if you're a woman, Nikki Haley, or if you're a bachelor, Lindsey Graham, or if you're African-American and a bachelor, Tim Scott. You don't get to be a Republican if you're black or Jewish Arab, Muslim, or Hispanic. The only people on the David Feldman show who get to be Republicans are thin, white, Christian, heterosexual males, married, never divorced, and they were either born into money or got lucky. 
The Republican Party represents the lucky. That's it. If you're unlucky, you don't get to be a self-loathing Republican. So, no, Chris Christie's weight is not off limits. If he wants sympathy and understanding, go be a Democrat. Otherwise, in my book, Chris Christie is a pig. If you're morbidly obese and a Republican, it's not biological. It's not glandular. It's not emotional. It's not because you were abused as a child. It's not you're suffering from depression, so your food is filling a void. It's not financial insecurity. If you're obese and you're a Republican, you're fat because you're a pig who has no self-control because that's the official Republican policy when it comes to poverty, obesity, race, sexuality, and how we were all born. You want understanding for your weight problem, Chris Christie? Get out of the Republican Party. Otherwise, you're a pig. And that's not fat shaming. That's shaming imbeciles like Chris Christie who are in denial about who they are and why they are. And this kind of thinking is getting us all killed. Save your complaints for somebody else. Okay, the man is a fat pig. Save your complaints to another host who gives a shit about Chris Christie's feelings. Horrible news coming out of southern Ukraine. A dam also serving as a hydroelectric power plant that held back water roughly the size of the Great Salt Lake in Utah burst open early Monday morning. The dam provided water to Crimea and served as a coolant for one of Ukraine's largest nuclear power plants. Ukraine said it was destroyed by Russia. Russia said it was destroyed by Ukraine. 40,000 Ukrainians are being evacuated right now, half of whom are living in Russian-occupied territory. The Geneva Conventions specifically prohibit the bombing of dams, but then again, it also forbids waterboarding. Last September in the Baltic Sea, the Nord Stream 1 and 2 underwater pipelines exploded, pouring liquid methane into the water. 14.6 million tons of carbon dioxide poured into the atmosphere. That's roughly equivalent to one third of Denmark's annual greenhouse emissions. After the explosions, uh, America's Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, cheerfully said the explosion served as a major blow to Russia's war effort in Ukraine and added it served as an opportunity to prevent Putin from holding Russia's natural gas as a ransom to keep Europe from assisting America in its support for Ukraine. The pipelines are owned primarily by Gazprom, the Russian state-owned oil company, and they were built to transport gas from Russia to Germany. In February of this year, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch wrote that America blew up the pipelines. Back in September, according to Hirsch, United States Navy divers working with the CIA and President Biden's Secret Service blew the pipelines up with a C4 explosive. Hirsch says the nation of Norway assisted us. Now, while the Biden administration denies any involvement 
The Washington Post reported last year that there was absolutely no evidence to suggest that Russia was behind the explosions. And many have pointed out, why would Russia blow up its own pipelines? On Monday, the Washington Post reported not that America blew up the pipelines like Seymour Hirsch reported, but the Washington Post reported that three months before the explosions, our CIA was made aware by one of our closest allies that the Ukrainian military was planning an attack on the pipelines. The Washington Post on uh, Washington Post has learned that European intelligence agencies tipped America off and the Post has gotten confirmation from several European officials that such an intelligence report had been shared. The Washington Post was able to get its hands on the report thanks to friends of Air National Guard member Jack Teixeira, who was arrested back in April for violating the Espionage Act when he posted classified documents on a Discord server shared by enthusiasts of Minecraft, a video game. Interesting. Free Julian Assange. Moms for Liberty is a tax-exempt 501c4 nonprofit. They fight the teaching of critical race and LGBTQ issues in our public schools. Founded in Florida back in 2021, Governor Ron DeSantis spoke at their very first meeting, Moms for Liberty now claims 100,000 members in 37 states. Moms for Liberty pushes to end COVID restrictions, vaccine mandates, and has called for libraries to ban books on Martin Luther King. It has often been accused of disrupting countless Board of Education meetings with the threat of violence. On Tuesday, the Southern Poverty Law Center officially listed Moms for Liberty as an anti-government extremist group. The Southern Poverty Law Center in this year's annual report warns that there are currently 1,224 right-wing extremist groups. Human Rights Campaign is America's largest LGBTQ advocacy group. It was founded back in 1980. On Tuesday, Human Rights Campaign declared a state of emergency for members of their community. This marks the first time in their more than 40-year history they've declared a state of emergency. In their report, Human Rights Campaign says the Republican Party is fueling discrimination against the LGBTQ community in unprecedented coordination with 525 anti-LGBTQ laws proposed in state legislatures around America in 2023 alone. 70 of these laws have been passed. Human Rights Campaign said all these laws were introduced by Republican politicians who received their funding from right-wing extremist groups. While several Black, Hispanic, and LGBTQ organizations have issued travel advisories to Florida last month, Human Rights Campaign warns that travel advisories are of no help to members of their community who are living in those states like Florida. Meanwhile, 200 LGBTQ groups 
called on Target to uh, resume the sales of gay pride merchandise after Target caved into pressure from Republicans and began pulling these items from their shelves. A coalition of 200 LGBTQ groups demanded on Tuesday that Target release a public statement in the next 24 hours, reaffirming their commitment to the LGBTQ plus community to put pride merchandise back on the sales floor and online in full view and ensure the safety of team members who are on the front lines. Conservatives are now boycotting Target. The left is about to boycott Target. Target has to make a choice. Governor Ron DeSantis is worth, we think, $319,000 and is still paying off his student loans. That's according to Business Insider. DeSantis doesn't own a house or stocks, and he owes $21,000 in student loans. According to financial disclosures from last year, DeSantis had one source of income for 2021. It was $134,181. That's the salary he is paid as governor of Florida. Between 2013 and 2018, he earned $174,000 a year as a congressman representing Florida's 6th district. DeSantis doesn't own property. When he was a congressman, he slept in his Washington, D.C. office and showered in the House gym. But DeSantis has not disclosed what he's worth this year. Back in May, when he officially declared that he was running for president, he was obligated to file a new financial disclosure with the Federal Election Commission. On Tuesday, lawyers for DeSantis wrote to the FEC asking for an extension on his financial disclosures. Meanwhile, California Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday called Ron DeSantis, quote, a small, pathetic man after the Florida governor sent a flight of South American migrants to live in California. And they were migrants who they picked up in Texas. California governor hinted that by law, DeSantis could be charged with kidnapping after California Attorney General Bob Bonta said he is beginning an investigation as to who was legally responsible for the safety of these migrants and wanted to know why the state of Florida was rounding up migrants in Texas and then shipping them to California. That can't be legal. Last fall, 49 asylum seekers in Texas were flown to Martha's Vineyard in a political stunt orchestrated by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Well, now a Bexar County, Texas Sheriff's Office is recommending that the district attorney for San Antonio file criminal charges in the shipment of those migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Why was Florida rounding up Texas migrants and sending them to Martha's Vineyard. So far, the sheriff's office is not naming a suspect, Ron DeSantis, or what the charges are, kidnapping. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, on Tuesday said that as his city tries to deal with a flood of migrants bust in from Texas, he will seriously consider housing 
a family of migrants in Gracie Mansion. That's the official residence for the mayor. Thousands of migrants have been shipped to the city with 50 houses of worship working with the city of New York to provide beds. Some good news on lung cancer, the deadliest of all the cancers. According to a new study out of Yale, a new pill taken daily cuts the number of deaths from lung cancer in half. The pill is made, the medicine is made by AstraZeneca. After five years, 88% of patients who took the daily pill after the removal of a tumor were still alive. That's compared with 78% of patients treated with a placebo. Meanwhile, Merck is suing the federal government, trying to reverse a provision in last year's Inflation Reduction Act that permits Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies on several drugs. We're going to pay attention to this story. Ten drugs, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, will be subject to negotiation with Medicare starting in September. And the results of of those negotiations will go into effect in 2026. Merck's popular diabetic drug is expected to be first on the list of drugs to be negotiated. Lawyers for Merck called this new law unconstitutional. More on this in the days to come. Well, speaking of free food and thank you, Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, Rahima.org. I do not ask you for anything. So go to Rahima.org and donate to Rahima.org. Give all the money you can to Rahima.org. They are a food pantry in the San Francisco South Bay, I believe, around San Jose. And it, uh, Rahima was set up by Professor Adnan Hussein's parents to take care of refugees. We create refugees here in the United States, but uh, we don't let them in. And the ones who are lucky enough to make it here into the United States are struggling. And Rahima.org was set up to feed refugees. And they give the right kind of food. It's healthy food, beans, rice, grains, yogurt. Tell us a little bit about Rahima.org, Professor Adnan Hussein, and then we'll begin the, the conversation. Well, thank you, David, for uh, bringing attention in your monologue recently about the crisis in food costs and why food isn't a basic right. Uh, it's exactly that kind of uh, you know, philosophy that motivated um, my mother to establish Rahima Foundation in our garage 30 years ago. And uh, they, you know, have been working, both my mother and father work there daily ever since my dad retired six days uh, a week, um, trying to provide food, including fresh vegetables. I think important to add to those other staples, a box of fresh vegetables uh, goes to every family who comes um, because there's uh, so much um, 
you know, economic pain uh, taking place around this country, around the world. Inflation, food prices have just exacerbated a problem that was already really terrible. But it's especially bad for people who are new to this country and have come from terrible circumstances where they've suffered trauma, devastation in their own countries, probably were not able to bring very much of their own whatever resources they had. They had to leave them behind. And so they come to this country, oftentimes um, as a result of U.S. foreign policy wars um, in the Middle East that have created a refugee crisis that is the greatest we've had since the end of World War II. Um, and so they come to the United States in small numbers, uh, since the U.S. doesn't tend to accept as many people, but those who do need a helping hand. And it started with Afghan refugees from the first, um, you know, kind of war that uh, Afghanistan was going through um, because of the Soviet uh, invasion and occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Uh, but then it continued with uh, Bosnians, Somalis, Iraqis, Syrians, and again, Afghans uh, coming again in new waves uh, since the global war on terror and the recent pullout. Um, so if people can help out, it would be really great um, to uh, help those who are the most vulnerable in, in our society. When you see... Let me ask Professor Marianne Cummings, when you see a Congress making people work for food stamps, how do you justify that? How, how, how can you, how do you uh, sleep at night? Not you, but how- your morality how, is centered around, you know, capitalism as a given, then there is like some- and in your worldview, there's actually some moral hazard in letting people eat who have right. worked. Moral hazard, right. I, I remember that from bailing out the banks, the moral yeah, hazard. Yeah, right. They never seem to like apply it to themselves ever in any capacity or dimension. But uh, the people outside of their social spheres, well, they were obviously, you know, just QED, just uh, un undesirables and unworthies. Whether, whereas because we're here in these vaunted halls, we're the all worthies. It's right. such a circular logic. Well, yeah, but it also reminds me of how I felt during the uh, kids in cages on the border and the way in which uh, a large portion of the U.S. public um, actually seemed to take some kind of pleasure in being able to see the subjection uh, of these of these people that the Republican uh, right wing um, is really uh, building a politics around a kind of sadistic um, mm -hmm. persecution of others. Um, unfortunately, the Democrats, you know, will, you know, uh, talk about this and how terrible it is, but they themselves don't really change the policies very significantly. But right. at least. They don't orient and develop their entire political discourse around this kind of uh, satisfaction that's being taken in the misery of others. And that's what I find especially disgusting about this, because it's obvious that it's not going to lead to less people on food stamps. It's not going to save really any money. 
but it really is because there's some emotional satisfaction that is being exploited in political terms to create this kind of politics of um, persecution. And, and, and that's disturbing. That to me is very disturbing to see how mainstreamed that is and how ineffective the uh, um, response is. Like the response is not to confront this you know, by standing up against this kind of blackmail and refusing to bow to what is detestable. It's truly detestable kind of politics. There's no rationale for it other than this, you know, uh, politics of persecution. And in doing that, by the way, I'd like to add, requiring people work for food food subsidies, I mean, that implies that their work won't be able to cover food subsidies. So you're basically subsidizing all these companies that are paying people barely minimum wage or sub-minimum wage, you know, to, it, it's just a big giveaway to these exploitative corporations. As a, to the billions of dollars. It, yes, of course. It, it, when, oh. when you go to work for Walmart, they give you applications for food stamps. Professor Hussein, in terms of civilization, what does food mean in terms of uh, how we uh, gather and talk and commune with one? What, what is what role does food play in building the glue that keeps us together throughout history? Well, I mean, if you think about it, it is the most elemental form of social life. Uh, you know, the collective effort to feed and support oneself. And in fact, every mode even before we get into industrial kind of production, uh, every earlier mode of production is fundamentally, you know, built around the food system. Um, so how is food procured? Hunter gatherer. We talk about this category of people. Well, it's hunting and gathering food. It's, it's the basis of the entire social order is how a group organized itself in order to survive and support one another in eating and feeding themselves. And you see that the huge change in the history of the world and what we think of as civilization is actually built upon the agricultural revolution, the domestication of you know, animals and the cultivation of crops. And it just completely changes the whole way in which society is organized and the direction of history. And for that reason, every single culture and every single society has important rituals, important customs, important social structures uh, around the sharing, uh, um, the providing, of, of food uh, because it's just so elemental. And so you really can't have society without sharing of food. It's so fundamental to what human society and human cultures are and have developed over time. So, Professor Marianne, do you think that there are Edward Bernays type minds advising the fascists that, you know, fight them on the food, scare them about food stamps? Is, is this some kind of what would motivate a party to be anti-food stamps? I mean, we saw it in the the debt talks. They like, why would you? How could that be politically expedient to say we got people off food stamps? I mean, it just makes 
I don't know. I mean, you know, what would motivate a, Demo- a Democrat candidate for president is to say that he would veto Medicare for all if it came to his desk. Right. I mean, these people aren't directly affected by any of this stuff. It is actually academic to them. And so, uh, you know, since they've commodified everything, we're, we've commodified education, we've commodified healthcare, we, we're commodifying water. I mean, we're a few clicks away from some of the extreme examples in South America, where in certain areas it was illegal that, by the way, Nestle Corporation had bought out the local politicians. It became illegal to collect the rainwater by traditional methods. In Bolivia. It was Bolivia. That's right. I thought I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think when you have a whole mindset where everything is up for sale and to be to commodified and you just break everything down to, you know, transactions like that. What do these people do for us? You know, and then you break people down to useful people. And, uh, you know, and non-useful people. I, it, it kind of reminded me of years ago when people were talking. We, we, I was at an uh, educational meeting, uh, East, East, East Aurora meeting. And, um, you know, they were still talking back then about charter schools and things like that. And there's a lot of uh, businesses that were weighing in. And I just got deeply offended by something a businessman, one business person said. And it was like, well, you know, basically, we see the value in education because, you know, this will help our work with our workforce and it'll make our companies productive. And I just got up and said, you know, I would consider a successful child of mine would be the person to destroy your business, to just come up with ideas that obliterate your profit model. You know, it's like this is this idea that children are just, you know, functional units for your future businesses. It's just it was so I, I don't know how to describe it. I heard it bef- this kind of thing before ever since I was a kid. But just that night, it just I, I was deeply offended by it. Right. And so, you know, it's like, who owns the food? Who, who owns who owns the uh, all the way from that to whom owns the mRNA technology? Since it was all publicly paid for R and D that brought it together, I mean, it's all been commodified from top down. So of course they do things like commodified food. Right, right. Rahima.org, R A H I M A dot org. Give to Rahima.org. They give uh, the, the, the food they give, your money goes a long way. If you go to Rehima.org and you see the, the vegetables and the grains and the beans, the beans, the beans and the yogurt, you can feed. Uh, I think food stamps averages about six dollars a day. Good luck feeding yourself on six dollars a day. But if you give six dollars to Rahima, they're. You can feed a family on $6 a day with a bag of beans, some rice, whole grain rice. Uh, it's, it's done if it got to know your nutrition. And obviously, Rahima.org understands what people need. So $6 is what food stamps averages. Give $6. 
to Rahima.org. If you're going to spend, let me just assure you of something. I don't know much, and then we'll move on. Tomorrow morning, if you go and buy a non-union cup of Starbucks for $6, instead of sending it to Rahima.org, you will burn in hell. Uh, I've just, that's just, that's a fact. Uh, hell is real. Hell is in front of you. It's on the streets of L.A., seeing all those people living on the streets. That's hell. It's right in front of you. If you choose to give Starbucks, you buy a burnt cup of non-union coffee for six bucks instead of giving it to Rahima.org, you will burn in hell. The planet is heating up and hell will be right in front of you. Drive through Los Angeles. It's hell. Hell exists. It's right in front of you. How do other countries deal with food right now? You travel around the world. Turkey had a big election, uh, two big earthquakes at the beginning of the year. Are people going hungry in Turkey or have they found a way to come together and feed everybody? Well, it, it is difficult. I mean, inflation is running rampant in Turkey, uh, high, well above you know global averages, and you know everyone blames what they call uh, Erdogan's "quote unquote" unorthodox economic policies, meaning that he doesn't raise interest rates um, or hasn't you know, has not pursued a um, you know a policy of raising interest rates to control inflation, as has been the you know. Uh, you know, off-the-shelf sort of policy of central banks across uh, Europe and North America, for example. Um, and if we had, uh, you know, D Professor Richard Wolf on, he would tell us that that's not the best way, actually, to control inflation, that historically there have been alternative options. FDR used ration, ration books, um, uh, you know, that uh, left-wing firebrand Richard Milhouse Nixon uh, imposed a, a wage price freeze and that these were effective techniques from our own experience and that there are a variety of things that people can do. But obviously, it hasn't been controlled well in Turkey. So there is definitely, uh, you know, staples have become very, very uh, expensive. Um but, uh, you know, Erdogan, and this is always cast in the worst possible light as a an electoral ploy. Uh, but he did, over the course of the year, raise uh, uh, government employee, public employee wages uh, pretty seriously, pretty dramatically by about about 40, 45 uh, percent in order to try and uh, stave off some of the problems of the affordability crisis. Um in general, Turks are pretty charitable. I did not see, although I start, I saw more than I had ever seen before. I did see some people begging and some people living on the street. But in a city of 20, you know, I don't know, 15 million, let's say. I mean, it's so hard to calculate one of these third world, you know, global south mega cities uh, that have sprawled. It's a megalopolis. Uh, it's remarkable how little like desperate poverty of that sort that we're seeing that you were just describing about people uh, who are homeless uh, living under uh, freeway underpasses in LA, San Francisco Bay Area. I was recently back in the Bay Area where I'm originally from and um, 
it is dramatic. Tent cities um, just in these unused spaces. Uh, it's horrific. And I didn't see things like that because there is quite a bit of solidarity. There are charitable institutions as well as government assistance. I would say um, that like in many countries, um, where there are resources, uh, they're shared a little bit more um, you know, than, than I, I'm, I'm noticing in the first world where uh, income inequality has grown so dramatically over the last 20, 30 years um, that it used, it, it, it's describing what used to be called a third world problem of a very small wealthy elite and most people living on, in, in impoverished circumstances. But a place like Turkey actually over the last 20 or 30 years has developed um, its economy. It was always an agricultural breadbasket, the Anatolian Peninsula. So they produce a lot of their own food and export it. Um, and there's been a lot of other kinds of economic development and a lot of housing projects built. And so while there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of problems. There is a problem of political authoritarianism. I mean, I talked with uh, friends and colleagues uh, who I went to graduate school with, who teach there in, in Turkey, who are Turks, um, who have colleagues who have been jailed, um, have themselves dealt with, uh, um, you know, politicized uh, cases uh, where because they signed a petition that called for peace negotiations with Kurdish, uh, you know, nationalist uh, insurgent uh, groups and political parties, they have been themselves prosecuted for, you know, violating uh, Turkish laws, um, you know, uh, anti-terrorism laws and so on. So there is, a there is you know, some per political persecution taking place. But overall, I would say that the sense of economic and social solidarity, uh, there's a much greater level of, of, of that kind of feeling, even though it's a very polarized society. I was shocked at how polarized it was. This recent election, the rhetoric and the discourse around it, it reminded me so much of the Trump, like Clinton, or the 2016, 2020 elections in the way that people uh, talked about it. I mean, Erdogan well, the stakes, as I understand it, were literally a return to democracy. Has Erdogan confiscated that much power from the parliament? Uh, I think that's a little I mean, there are problems with Turkey's democracy, of course, and this centralizing of power under Erdogan, who has also reshaped the party. So it's become very much dependent on him and his coterie of support. But I feel like a lot of the Western media exaggerated, uh, you know, that it was the you know end of Turkish democracy and this sort of thing. I mean, there was 85 percent uh, participation in these elections. Um, I know that there were problems that, you know, the public media mm -hmm. uh, did not, uh, you know, give equal time, you know, to the opposition. Kilic Darolu. I mean, a fair point is, is that Erdogan is the president. So, you know, things that he does as president are going to be covered and they could certainly have positive electoral. Well, didn't they privatize? Benefits. Hasn't he privatized a lot of national media? He, he, he has indeed. And a lot of the kind of major uh, Turkish media are owned now by those who are 
uh, affiliated with uh, the AK party or are connected to him or pro uh, Erdogan. And so that has definitely reshaped um, the kind of political culture through the media. Um, and definitely this election uh, turned really upon everyone thought that it was going to be about the economy. Stupid. <laughs> Apparently mm-hmm. it, it ended up not being because everybody is suffering economically in Turkey because of this rampant inflation, currency crisis, cost of living crisis. Um, but uh, his core base that suffered the two massive earthquakes and also suffering this economic uh, dislocation did not abandon him in the numbers that would be needed. And the areas where he's most popular suffered yeah, the worst from the that's earthquakes. Right. That's right. And so, you know, some of the analysis by Turkish commentators uh, that I picked up on was that um, he was very successful in exploiting basically the culture war um, in also uh appealing to the nationalistic sentiments of the need to maintain integrity of the nation and um, stop uh, what they call, you know, terrorism and secessionism, you know, with Kurdish nationalist aspirations for autonomy or even independence. And that he played upon those fears, fears and managed to associate the opposition with Kurdish separatism. Um. And so the culture and the national security and the foreign policy kinds of questions, the questions of identity, of maintaining kind of Muslim identity uh, of the nation, the Turkishness of the nation seem to have appealed enough despite the economic difficulties. Um, So people were, were remarking on the fact that people seem to be willing to go hungry. This is at least how they framed it for this sort of kind of romantic nationalist notion that they were willing to go hungry to preserve, you know, the integrity of the of the Turkish nation. You know, this that kind of thing makes me suspicious because I don't want to think that um, such intangible nationalistic kinds of sentiments can override material deprivation to that degree. But this is what uh, even commentators on the opposition were saying is that they failed. The other part of it is that they failed really, the opposition failed to really connect with that heartland Ah, or Anatolian base, you know? Yeah, that's familiar. And if you look at an electoral map of the areas that were won by the uh, opposition versus uh, those that went with Erdogan, it looks just like the United States. It's the east and the west ends of the country along the wow. coast and the Kurdish oh, yeah. areas on in the east. And then the two really big metropolitan centers, Ankara, the capital and Istanbul. I mean, Istanbul, Izmir, the, you know, the three big cities all went, you know, for the opposition, as well as the coastal uh, areas, Antalya, these these kind of coastal resort areas and towns uh, along the uh, Marmara Sea. Uh, Mediterranean Sea and the heartland all completely for Erdogan, you know, the Anatolian Mm. countryside. Well, it was clear that the uh, Western countries favored the opposition, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it would be fair to ask, you know, maybe this is why the the poor areas were persuaded. In, in what country where Western influencing, uh, one for Western preferred government got in and actually made life better for people like them? 
Well, that's it. I mean, you know, something that Gene uh, 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 Bajalan, who, um, you know, appears on This Is Revolution and a couple others uh, and was a good friend of Michael Brooks, he used to be the Middle East guy for Michael Brooks, for the Michael Brooks show. He pointed out that um, the opposition uh, really offered no alternative other than kind of a return to neoliberal dictates run by Washington. You know, there's a Washington consensus. And I think that kind of became clear when uh, the week before the election, The Economist magazine uh, had a front cover, you know, uh, front cover of the magazine. Uh, basically said that Turkey's election was the most important election that would happen in 2023. And it had a graphic that had kind of political slogans of opposition, you know, kind of mimicking that, you know, what the opposition was saying. It said, you know, Erdogan must go. And the AK party and Erdogan made a big deal when I was there. It was just on the news constantly. Panels convened talking about who is the economist to run our affairs? Who are they to interfere in our election? And if they want me to go, then it's because they don't want me to do you know good for the people of Turkey. They don't want a strong Turkey. They just want us to be subordinate to the West. So it played upon exactly these nationalist, anti-imperialist kinds of sentiments um, that they could make hay out of. Um, so it was almost in some ways those cosmopolitan connections to the West uh, and to, you know, associate by association to Kurdish nationalist separatism that galvanized a nationalist discourse um, that Erdogan was effective in exploiting. Interesting. You don't... Uh, how, what, how does Erdogan justify the power grabs? He's afraid of the West? Is that the... Well, you know, he doesn't frame it in that way. I mean, they have in Turkey, they have quite a number of laws that are open to political exploitation about denigrating the Turkish, you know, denigrating the, the Turkish state, about you know, uh, bringing, um, pub, you know, public uh, figure or public, uh, uh, you know, elected officials, you know, in disrepute, you know, un, un, unfairly, these kinds of things that are used to uh, tamp down on, even prosecute um, those who make public criticism um, of Erdogan, uh, Erdogan's regime and administration. Um, of course, the key Kurdish um, uh, opposition political figure, uh, uh, um, uh, why am I forgetting his name? Um, Demirtas, yes. Uh, Demirtas has been jailed um, for association with uh, outlawed terrorist organ, you know, connections to uh, outlawed terrorist organization, PKK, etc., and so that was a very effective figure to be removed from the political environment. One of the other potential major candidates that might have been more charismatic and popular than Kilic Darolu, who was chosen by the by the um, uh, opposition, uh, uh, the current mayor of Istanbul, which is actually where Erdogan got his political start. He was mayor, a successful mayor of, of Istanbul. This guy, Imam Olu was uh, likewise under prosecution and indictment, um, you know, for, again, something that's quasi-political. And as a result, um, 
you know, he wasn't chosen to lead the opposition group to run for president during this time. So there are clearly, you know, manipulations taking place. But on the other hand, um, you know, Erdogan looks, uh, you know, presents, look what I've done for the country. You know, we've got these massive airports, these huge infrastructure projects. Turkey's important in the world. You cannot imagine how significant that is and how much that resonates to people. I, I saw some secularists who were in favor of Erdogan who were saying uh, they were interviewed and they said before, you know, the AK party, even though we're not religious before AK, the AK party, Turkey was a village. Now look at us. Mm -hmm. We are like an important country, you know, in the world geopolitically. And I, I can tell you also that his reelection was warmly regarded in throughout the Middle East and the Islamic world. Of course, some of the elites, they have rivalries, but I'm talking about the base population because they see him as a symbol of being able to lead a majority Muslim country into modernity and being successful and actually being relatively democratic compared to all the other ones. So when we are talking about how authoritarian Turkey is, there are indeed problems, um, but compared to Saudi Arabia, compared to Egypt, compared to, you know, the mess that's been created because of, you know, in Libya and Iraq and Syria as a result of these regime change, you know, operations and wars. I mean, people look to Turkey as a really successful model um, that they're happy is 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 kind of resisting um you know, well, taking an independent path. And I think that's what really concerns the West. The reason why they focus so much on him is because he has uh, put a stop to NATO membership of Sweden and, you know, at least put the brakes on it. Uh, he has uh, brokered agreements between Ukraine and Russia and has not um, followed through with adopting um, the U.S. sponsored sanctions uh, on Russia. And these things disturb uh, you know, the power brokers in in um, the foreign policy establishment of the, of the West, they, they used to be able to count on Turkey as being an extremely reliable NATO Western, you know, ally that would pursue U.S. policies uh, in the Middle East and on the borders, you know, with Russia. I mean, the Black Sea is the only border between, you know, you know, what was the Soviet Union and Russia and, and Turkey. Right. So it's in a strategic location. Great. Thank you for that. Let's talk about artificial intelligence. Professor Marianne Cummings, you're a physicist with the, the Fermi lab. Are you yeah. are you surprised by this conversation about artificial intelligence? Uh, which I mean, there are many conversations. The, the, the Cassandra's saying it's, you know, the world is going to end because of this. And oh, how would you um, relate artificial intelligence to your field, which is nuclear nuclear power? Well, I'm I did a I was involved in a great analysis on my thesis experiment, and we were one of the two big experiments at Fermilab, and we Fermilab discovered the top quark, and the top quark had all kinds of different channels to which to decay. The greatest number of top quarks that decayed were in this one channel that was considered not to be seeable. It was considered to be impossible to separate signal from background. And me and my buddies did it. And we did it with neural networks. 
And, you know, it's basically what it is, is you've got, you've got a whole bunch of characteristics of, of, of that might be slightly different from background of a real top event in this channel. And, and you've got to like combine all of those together. So neural networks, it's basically a, a nonlinear function is what it is, but it can kind of replicate intelligence because it's not the, it, it's not something that we would regard as mechanical. Um, I remember there was a demonstration at Fermilab from MIT. It was called artificial creatures. And one of the breakthroughs in artificial intelligence was, was not to have it top down. Many people found that even for animals and even humans, most of us are on little automated do loops that get interrupted during the day. Walk, you know, open mm -hmm. fridge. Why am I opening the fridge? We don't even know because right. we're on autopilot. So they found that if they could do an algorithm with these little mechanical things that look like caterpillars and 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 spiders and things like that, but very, very simple algorithms like backward, forward, but interruptible. If, you know, resistance, then lift, you know, if heat, go forward, if heat, go backward. And maybe about you get about five or six of these simple algorithms that are all mutually interruptible. And then you get something that's moving like a very organic thing, not a mechanical thing. So so anyway, but back to the consideration now, you know, um, I, I have to say, well, before, yeah. hang on, that was brilliant. Yeah. So if you create these caterpillars and you say survive by any means necessary. Well, you know, there was a there was a 1929 science fiction it was Rustin in Rustin's Universal Robots or something. I guess where the term robot came from, where there was a story that basically there was the prime directed of these robots to never to see to it that no harm comes to humans. So you know what happens? All human beings get put in bubbles. And we get fed and cleaned and we can't touch anything and we can't interact because, you know, life is so it's kind of like you get out what you put in. <laughs> so they're definitely. So, so yeah, we can, is it I'm fair to say, yet. is yeah. it fair to say that when we uh, unleashed the atom. For better or worse, we. We have done, we've been able to control what we know and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Is it fair to say that, that science has been able to rein well, in control the what we know? We haven't really been able to control what, you know, what we know since we've unleashed the electrons from their orbits, since we had wireless. I mean, you know. But science um, can be stopped, right? The march of there's it's not inevitable. You can you can stop cloning. You, oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Thomas Frank wrote about this, you know, and he said that basically good governance, democratic governance can stop science. And he says, I'm not anti-science, but science has often been weaponized because science inherently is incomplete. It's incomplete knowledge. That's the difference between science and theology, you know, so we know it's incomplete. So what and is a realistic fear with AI? 
What is a in the next five oh, years? Well, realistic fear is like anything else. It's like a lot of what passes for AI is just pattern recognition. I was going to say something when we when you brought that up because I've had like three different minor amounts of money, but amounts of money from lawsuits that have been deposited into my PayPal account within the last three months. One of them was from Facebook because they took my image and labeled it on, you know, without my permission. The other was from zoom. I just got one today from zoom because, you know, the, somehow my image on a zoom meeting got out someplace where it shouldn't have. I don't know. The thing is, is that it, it's nothing new. It's that, you know, people like Zuckerberg had been exploiting what should be people's privacy, which people's should be their own stuff. I have something written by a lawyer in somewhere in my uh, in, in my Facebook profile that said any image I post that I label as my creation is mine. And I do not give you permission to just use it for commercial purposes, you know, right. that kind of. So that's what it is. I mean, a lot of this is just fancy, you know, like pattern recognition that's been going on for a very, very long time, even before computers, you know, um, it, it's just made so much more powerful because of the power of computers. And, um, you know, we, I think a very good example is in security. Um, I know two people, one of them used to be in our chat room, but I know two people on this in this world who could make the internet completely secure and completely open. It's just a matter of how you used it. Uh, one of the intelligent professionals for sanity, um, what was his name? Um, Yan with a B, but he was the he was the head of, of, of technology director for the national for uh, the NSA for 26 years, and he developed an algorithm to track uh, to track possible terrorists, but he did it without having to like directly snoop on people. You would use metadata, you would use patterns that would reflect a kind of aberration in an area. It could be money, it could be like deposits in a bank. You don't know which deposits, you just say, what's all this money going from here and going out through there? That's that's weird. And if you had a pattern, that, but you kept everybody's information encrypted. And then you had a pattern that was you know that 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 could be a trigger for a possible uh, bad event about to happen. Um, you would get a warrant based on that, and you would only uncover these people. And that was, I think, uh, that was his program was called Thin Thread. He said we could have had the whole, we could have prevented terrorist attacks and had the whole world secure post nine one right after nine one one one. But what did they go? What they go with? No, massive data sweeps, sweeping up everybody's information. They did it, and Tadzi Pelosi allowed it back in 2005. Remember when AT&T was sweeping up everybody's information? And then later on, we find out that Yahoo was doing it. And, you know, so they've got this ton of information to sift through. And it's the, mo the leakiest, most insecure, inefficient method possible for national security. Right. However, if you want to manipulate stuff, if you want to find out stuff about political enemies, this could work out great. So, you know, it's all about how it's deployed. So I'm not, 
I mean, I, I, I think it's it, people are getting caught up with the technology computers where this kind of game has been going on forever in terms of, you know, we get a certain technology, somebody figures out how to exploit it. Yeah, I mean, it's now we're incredibly interconnected that has its own quality and its own set of problems, but it also has its own set of solutions. People are not necessarily isolated in this, but. Professor Hussein, you had seen something involving the military's concern about AI? Yes. Uh, and but first, I think the person you're referring to was Bill Binney, who was a Bill Binney, William Binney. Right. Yeah, right. William Binney. That's right. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. No, I saw something recently. And I found this a really strange story because um, apparently there's a U.S. Air Force Colonel, Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton, who gave a presentation last month to the Royal Aeronautical Society Conference. Uh, what a great! He, it sounds like a character George C. Scott played in a Stanley Kubrick movie. <laughs> it, it definitely does. It really yeah. does. And um, he apparently misspoke. Uh, now uh, it was just uh, you know stated. Uh, I think the Air Force uh, said that the, nothing like this actually happened, yeah. and he apparently has withdrawn the comments and said he misspoke. Um, but what he said apparently during this presentation that was reported on at the time was that uh, they had run a simulated test with an AI operated drone um, that had been given instructions to target and kill all kinds of you know, you know people, et cetera, but that the operator had then modified it and told, uh, tried to instruct the, the drone uh, not to kill everybody and some people should should live and that the AI operated drone had then killed the operator in this in this simulation. <laughs> and this, smarter than they thought it was. <laughs> yeah. And so this caused like all kinds of concerns, apparently about, you know, ethics and control over how you could have this rogue AI drone simulation that would then you know, turn upon, you know, it's a classic sort of fear of the machines turn on, you know, the humans, you know, a great sci-fi, you know, theme that we've seen in many, in many, you know, cultural products. Yeah. Um, The T-1000 Terminator. Yeah. Exactly. But um, what I found interesting was that the article reporting on the controversy said that, well, there's a lot of discussion about AI ethics. And they characterize this within the field of ethics and AI. And I thought, we're talking about the military that is an organization dedicated to the killing of people around the world. And they're worried about the ethics of (laughs) the AI making an independent decision about how to use this force. Oh, my um, God. I mean, when you think of the, yeah. the pullout from Afghanistan and that drone strike that killed all those oh, yeah, innocent right. aid workers, I could hear uh, Kirby, who's now the spokesperson for Biden, but he was the spokesperson for the Pentagon at the time saying, uh, we're going to the AI, uh, we're going to look into it. But there was an AI prop. I mean, that they can't. They're salivating over the opportunity 
to blame AI instead exactly. of- Exactly. That's a, that's a great point because that's kind yes, of what I was thinking. It's like, yeah, let's blame the AI drone as like a real source of unstable use of military weaponry and power. And, you know, you have this Anne Stefanik, U.S. Air Force spokesperson who had to do the you know, attempt to, uh, you know, smooth over this controversy that came out. So in her statement, she said, the Department of Air Force has not conducted any such AI drone simulations and remains committed to ethical and responsible use of AI technology. Yes. <laughs> well, this is really rich, you know, right. I mean. Um, Don't blame R2-D2. Well, when you look at WikiLeaks, I doubt we'll get any videos of AI laughing as they gun down innocent uh, photographers from Reuters in Apache helicopters. It'll just be dispassionate application of the algorithm that they've received. You know, I think that's what Marianne said about, you know, it's the programming, you know, so. You know, you tell the AI, you know, uh, computer and robots that, you know, you must preserve human life and, you know, and and eliminate dangers and threats. And so then we'll all be encased and forcibly encased in bubbles. Right. You know, so it's it's the programming. um, Can I ask you both a person? Can I ask you both a personal question? Go ahead. Are you surprised? I am shocked by the the brutality that persists in humanity that 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 no matter what we do uh, that sounds uh, like a pretty impersonal question actually well are you shocked by the stubborn persistence of cruelty in in our systems of government and in corporate America and in the military, and that you just you cannot eradicate the the human impulse to destroy things, to destroy other people. Are you shocked by that? I I I think I'm being disingenuous. I think I'm lying to myself when I say I'm surprised by how cruel people are. But it seems I'm not surprised. But I don't think it's so much the cruelty of one person, it's the just ability of people to turn away from cruel, from cruel situations that are affecting their fellow human beings because it's personally benefiting themselves. If you're doing well in a system, it's hard to criticize that system even when it's crushing like right. eight out of 10 of your neighbors. And what they've, what they've figured out to do in, in at least America, is the people who turn a blind eye to the cruelty have figured out a way to get uh, low information, low income Americans to salivate over the cruelty, even though they they don't have they don't participate in the cruelty. They end up being the victims of this cruelty more often than not, but they don't turn a blind eye to this cruelty. They relish it. They figured out. Yeah, it's weirdly empowering, as I, you know, back in the Gulf War, when uh, Donald Rumsfeld had that famous memo, take the gloves off, you know, the cruelty wasn't the bug. It it was the feature of that whole system and that whole administration. 
Which is why I say on this show, we should be as cruel to Jeff Bezos as he is. We should be 10 times crueler to Jeff Bezos as he is to this country. You know, hit below the belt, make fun of the way he looks. Just just hurt him by any means, not hurt him. Taste through a Buddhist perspective that you're actually being compassionate here because you will prevent him from several, several incarnations of utter misery and suffering because of the karma he built up in this lifetime. Right. So I'm up against uh, some people who are don't. Chris Christie is going to we have to wrap it up. And I wanted to get to the environment in a second. But Chris Christie is going to be running for president. He's declaring on Tuesday. Now, I've been told, don't make the jokes. Don't do it. And because it's something he can't change. Well, there are a lot of things we can't change that Republicans like him punish us over. So why is he inoculated from my scorn over what he can't change while he's going to introduce policy that punishes people for things they can't change. Why do I have to be, why do I have to take the high road? Well, because politically, well, it depends. I mean, if you just want cheap laughs and it's an entertainment show and you're a comedian, great, go for it. Uh, If it's a political show, does the demeaning of Chris Christie on that basis advance anything politically? I mean, well, do you I think as, no. if I said during a debate, if they asked me to ask Chris Christie a question, food stamps average six dollars a day, Governor Christie. Could you live on six dollars a day of food stamps? Is that a fair question to ask? Well, that wouldn't even cover the breast breakfast cannolis. (laughs) (laughs) I think he spends six dollars a day just on Tums. So at what point does does his inability to control his appetite go from fat shaming to a legitimate conversation about policy and hunger in America. It's a question of uh, control of appetites, you're saying. Yeah. Does he have the discipline, you know, to, you know, do what's best for the country rather than what's best for himself? But a lot of Republican policy is about self-control and about, you know, gambling. No, no not, not for yourself, not for themselves, for us. Well, yes, discipline for us. Yeah, we need to be controlled. I mean, I want to I want to interview Chris Christie and ask him how many lap bands he's busted through. I, I think that is a and I've been told. Don't. Don't go there. And I'm thinking they get to go there. They say, well, I don't know. Uh, anyway, let's talk about the environment. Uh. How many uh, Chris Christie belches do you think are responsible for uh, 
most of our greenhouse gases. Well, let's talk. We're ignoring the environment, aren't we? This is not being discussed. Not at all. It's the elephant in the room or the Chris Christie in the room. And I, I, I mean, I <laughs> remember being at a meeting of the uh, Bolton, the atomic scientists meeting. It was down in Chicago and Jerry Brown was there. A bunch of all worthy, the worthies were there. It was 2016. And, you know, I just kind of let people have it because you guys are, I've said, you know, y'all are rich. You're just not serious. <laughs> we're, we're supposed to just get behind like the current nominee was Hillary, who hasn't said anything about, she didn't have to say Green New Deal, but what is a serious national effort to like redo our energy infrastructure and everything else to help deal with, be a leader in the world with climate change? I think basically we won't be the leader in climate change. It might be it might be India with its thorium nuclear reactors. Well, we're the oh, leader. In, we're the leader reactors. in causing it. Well, they're already just you know uh, a billion and a half people and agriculture and wanting cars. I mean, it's uh, we we aren't we have not taken the lead in anything that would push humanity forward, and that's kind of sad because we still have an enormous influence in the world, but. That influence has been waning and we have just we, we have just wasted the time well, we could have just had a green new deal. We could have just supercharged this economy instead of it's limping along and don't pay attention to that job report. <laughs> it's complete fraud. But, uh, you know, it's but we're not doing it. That's the thing. I think the one thing that I was surprised at, I thought that. Nothing good would happen. None of Biden wouldn't keep any of his promises, but there would be at least some kind of consortium of adults that would sit down, even with the fossil fuel industry and everybody else in the nuclear industry and solar panels and everything, and just say, "Hey, we've got to up, we've got to do something about this. We have to have a coherent national energy policy." And I don't see that happening. Right. To be continued. Yeah. Professor Mary. Oh, I love this. It's great. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's it's great. Let's do this next Friday. I hope you're both available. Uh, yeah. It's it's like old times. The yeah. the professors and Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, besides being a brilliant artist, is also a physicist. And on this show, most importantly, a political activist who has gotten elected She's Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, and she still believes in Nina Turner. We've we and just. I, yeah, I know that still yes. believe, even though I'm I'm kind of pissed off at her. But that, you know, that just goes with the territory here. Yeah. Perfect. And I planted a garden, my garden plot completely planted. Holy crap. Growing food is hard work. It's just. But, you know, keeps you in touch. Which is why people should give to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Professor uh, Adnan Hussein is the host of Guerrilla History with Henry Huckamaki, and he also hosts the Mudgeless podcast. Why don't you tell us more about Rahima.org so my listeners don't burn in hell? Well, just quickly, um, it's... Uh 
small uh, charitable foundation that provides food and other kinds of assistance to uh, people who really need it in the Bay Area, uh, suffering job layoffs, incredibly high housing prices, and with inflation, increasing costs of food. Um, many of the people that they serve are refugees from Afghanistan, Bosnia, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, uh, on and on. Um, and uh, so they could really use uh, your help. Uh, I can guarantee you that uh, every little bit helps and that uh, they will get good, wholesome, preferably when possible, organic um, uh, food staples for them to cook healthy meads, uh, meals to sustain themselves and their families. You know, there there's a ritual surrounding Starbucks that I fell prey to that you just you're we're all addicted to caffeine. And there's a ritual of going into Starbucks, buying your burnt non-union coffee, spending the money and getting the sense of feeling juiced up. And there's a ritual. There's smells associated with it. Make your own coffee at home. Uh, it's a lot cheaper. And create a ritual in which you uh, create some senses that are very satisfying in donating to Rahima.org. A, a $5 donation once a month, a $6 donation. Create a ritual around that and it will be much better for you than drinking burnt non-union coffee from Starbucks. Create some kind of hand-to-mouth ritual that I'm going to talk to uh, Ethan Hershenfeld about, where you're giving money to Rahima instead of to Starbucks. Because I can assure you, if you choose a non-union burnt cup of coffee over Rahima, hell exists. Hell exists. It's real. It's right in front of you. Drive, drive down Pico in Los Angeles and see all the homeless people. Hell exists. So you will burn in hell if you do not give to Rahima.org. Uh, I mean that. I do. Thank you both. Peace out.